Oh, Lord God, we thank you for this time to gather together that as we discuss being a neighbor, that you, I pray that we might see the relevance of these passages. May we be convicted by their truth, and may we live light in light of them. God, may these, may my fellow brothers and sisters be encouraged. May they be built up for your glory and for your honor. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we had finished all the stuff for the Baptist Essentials last week, and this week we will be beginning a new short series on being a neighbor. But I wanted to ask if we had any questions on Baptist Essentials before I dive into neighbors. Any questions dealing with Baptist Essentials? Okay. So we are going over a six-week series on neighboring, or what, is, what it means to be a neighbor. Now, this is an interesting topic because Las Vegas climate <laughs> does not permit us to be outside during mo most of the year. And so we sometimes miss opportunities to get to know our neighbors if we were in a different state, such as California, where the weather is nice, people actually sit outside during July and August, we might interact with our neighbors more. But I want to use this opportunity to almost challenge us on well, what does it mean to be a neighbor in each one of your individual circumstances. So one of the first things I want you guys to think about is, where is your neighborhood? How long have you lived there? Have you actually met most of your neighbors, the people who are close by? Now, I don't mean everyone that's on your street, or if you live in a condo, a townhouse, or apartment, you don't need to know every single in the complex right next to you, because then you have 10 neighbors very easily to get to know. But the people that you see often, do you know their name? Do you know about them? Have you actually stopped and said hi and introduced yourself? Or have you been living there for 20 years and you don't even know the person who lives directly next to you? Those are some of the things I want to challenge you with throughout this series. And so the goal is for you guys to understand what it means to be a Christian and to be a good neighbor. So we're gonna be diving into that um, partly this week of who is our neighbor what does it mean to be a neighbor but i also want you guys to understand the complexity of being a good neighbor it's not as simple as you move into the neighborhood you bring people a plate of cookies say hi and you're good in different situations being a good neighbor can look differently and so we're going to discuss some practical stuff throughout this series of what to think about and what to do. So the first thing is, let's talk about who is our neighbor? What is the understanding in the Bible talk about with neighbors? How do we understand it today? 
So in point two, why should I love my neighbor? Let's turn to Leviticus 19, and I'm going to give some context of the use and understanding that the Jewish people had on neighbor, the Pacific word neighbor. The Jews ended up having a very confused and almost too narrow view of a neighbor. But we could actually say that about most of their understandings of the Bible. And when we get to the Sermon on the Mount in a couple of minutes, Jesus repeatedly corrected them in their understandings. He would often say, you have heard it said, but I say. And he was expounding on the Jews' understanding of what it means to commit adultery or murder. Jesus makes it clear it's not just the physical act of adultery, but it's in the heart too. The Jesus also applied a lot of the Old Testament law to the heart and expounded on the understanding that the Jews had during that day. So Leviticus 19 actually has a whole passage, and in most of your Bibles, the section heading will say, love your neighbor as yourself. And that comes from the last verse in this passage. Now the Jews understand under how they understood who your neighbor was was very different than how Jesus expounded upon it. So let, let me read through Leviticus 19, starting in verse 9 and going to verse 18. And pay attention to ways that you were called to love your neighbor in the Old Testament. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right to the edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired hand shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear the Lord, your God. I am the Lord. You shall, not, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defect to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall remain frankly with him, lest you incur sin before him. And you shall not take vengeance nor bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So here we have a lot of practical examples of what it means to love your neighbor. In the nation of Israel, they had almost their own welfare system. If the poor were in a situation where they needed food, they could oftentimes glean the outside of the crop after they have been harvested. And that was a way for them to feed themselves and to work and still be able to survive. And so it was love for your neighbor that allowed them to eat by not taking all the food. 
You're also called not to steal, to tell lies, not to oppress, not to do injustice. These are all examples of ways that you are called to love your neighbors. And a lot of these we can still see nowadays how we can actually apply that to our next door neighbor. The issue came with the Jewish understanding of who their neighbor was. And it actually comes from verse 18. Let's look at it again. You shall not take vengeance nor bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourselves. What the Jews ended up doing was taking that phrase and saying, see, our neighbor is only other Jews. So everyone else is not our neighbor. Because it says right here, um, do not bear a grudge against the sons of your people, which are fellow, fellow Israelites or Jews, but you shall love your neighbor, which is implying that your neighbor is a fellow Jew. And so they just kind of like, okay, that settles it. Only Jews are neighbors. And so all these other commandments don't apply to Gentiles. In fact, where we start talking about like Exodus 20 and the commandments of not lying to one another, they would actually, there were some Jews that would argue that you could tell a lie to a Gentile because they weren't your neighbor. And the command to love your neighbor only applies to Jews, so lie to them if it benefits you. And what ends up happening over the course of the history of the Jews is they become more and more hostile to Gentiles. They didn't care about loving them. They would treat them wrong and oppress them. All we do is have to think of the book of Ruth. When they come back into the area and they're Moabites, the family kind of gets ostracized and mistreated. Now, eventually they do become part of the community. And there were ways that non-Israelites could become a Jew. There were ways that they could actually come into the land and eventually gain almost like citizenship, as we would think about it. But before then, they were mistreated because they were not a Jew and not a neighbor, was their understanding at the times. This partly comes through Leviticus in the dietary laws and all the commands that are meant to set the nation of Israel separate, apart. And so God had given commandments of their dietary restrictions, how to cook the food, what to eat. And so what ends up happening is it says in Leviticus, um, only around chapter 7, the 11 starts giving some dietary laws. Don't eat this, do it this way, prepare your food in a certain way. If you eat these foods, you are considered unclean. So naturally what ends up happening is the Gentiles are considered unclean. And Leviticus 7 says, if you touch anything that's unclean, you become unclean. So don't you dare even sit at a table with a Gentile or you're going to be unclean just by being close enough to them. And so we start seeing how the Jewish understanding wrongly views Gentiles. And we could spend a whole lesson on the Old Testament in talking about Gentiles were always meant to be saved. The Jews ended up becoming very racist. 
any Gentile, any outsider, they looked down upon them, and they had this pride in their own heart, and that's where you oftentimes see the Pharisees wanting to justify in their heart. They believed that they could be saved by works. And we'll see that in Matthew, um, or sorry, Luke 10, but they wanted to justify themselves. And so their pride got the better of them, and so they were extremely racist towards Gentiles. So that's where this misunderstanding of neighbors starts getting applied. And we also have one other place in Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 23, where it talks about exclusion from the assembly of God. And it talks about the Moabites and the Amorites are not allowed to be part of the assembly of God up to 10 generations. They're not to serve in the temple, and they give these restrictions on them. There's other groups, such as the Egyptians, that they could after three generations. But if you were a Moabite, if you were Amorite, it's like, nope, 10 generations later. Like, you're not even welcome at that point. And so what was meant to be an opportunity for the nation of Israel to remain separate, to remain holy, ended up getting twisted as a reason to be racist towards their Gentile neighbors. And so you just see this continual hatred towards outsiders. Now the word neighbor in Hebrew throughout the Bible gets used in, a, in many different ways. About half the time it actually gets translated as the word neighbor. About a fourth of the time it gets just translated as friend or companion. And so a neighbor the understanding of the coming is someone who is close to you. And that can just be physically close. Someone you're just talking to. But it starts getting a wider understanding in certain areas. And I'll explain more of that in just a moment. But let's, let's, let's go to Matthew chapter 5 and hash out a little bit more of our understanding of neighbor through Jesus. So, Matthew 5 is in the context of the servant amount, and this is where Jesus is repeatedly expanding the understanding of the law and giving the proper view of it. Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 43. This section is also called Love Your Enemies. Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing rather than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus expands the understanding of neighbor and loving of the people. So Jesus quotes, he's saying, you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor 
as yourself. That is the reference to Leviticus 19. The second part is where he says, and hate your enemy. That is found nowhere in the Old Testament. Actually, nowhere in the Bible, I should say. What ended up happening is because of the Jewish misunderstanding of neighbor and hating, they, the Jewish teachers, started to teach you should just hate your neighbors or you should hate your enemies. And we can actually look at Psalm 139 to get a little bit of understanding of this. So in Psalm 139, it's a psalm that most of us know where it talks about, search me, O Lord, and examine my heart. I'll read a couple of verses from the beginning and then jump to the end. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. Let's kind of jump to the end and see what it ends up turning. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they would be more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malice intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And if there is any egregious way in me, lead me in the way of everlasting. So the Jews would be like, see, look, David, he says he hates his enemies. Look at the hostility. And that's found in the Psalms. Now we can start understanding of why the Jewish would sometimes teach they just hate your enemies. Now, David, in one sense, is talking about men of blood. This is talking about people who have actually, with their hands, have committed murder, which is what that phrase, oh, men of blood, means, depart from me. Violent men who use their power to kill and to wound others. And David is talking about his frustration with the enemies of the foreign lands and how they have mocked God. And he says his frustration, and then he asked the Lord to examine them. Now, the Jewish people in that time then twitched that and just said, see, hate your neighbor. Don't do anything nice to them. And so it was a misunderstanding, and they started to apply that. And that's where a lot of the racism came in the Jewish people. And Jesus corrects that. He says, no, don't hate your enemies but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for the enemies. And the interesting thing is, is what it says. Verse 45. For what purpose are we supposed to love our enemies? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So by loving your enemy, you are being like God. How do we know that? Because God loves his enemies. When there is rain that comes on the land, 
you don't see the Christian have the cloud of rain pouring on their house and their next-door neighbor no rain whatsoever. We don't see the sun rise and only hit Christians, but God in his love and kindness shows grace to all people by sending rain in the sun. But this goes even farther because we as Christians must remember that at one point we too were enemies of God, haters of God. And God in his love sent Jesus Christ to die for his enemies. We were once hostile towards God, but God in his kindness sent the Lord Jesus. And now we understand that the love that God has for his enemies is great. People who are in open hostility, who want to wrong God, who will spit in the face of Jesus and crucify him, God sent Jesus to die so that we might be saved. And so by loving our enemies, we are in fact, in one sense, being like sons of our Father. We are loving those who hate us. And so Jesus says, no, don't mistreat your enemies. Love your enemy, or love your neighbor, and love your enemy. The Gentiles, unbelievers, tax collectors, they treat people they like with respect. That's easy to do. When someone's nice to us, it's easy for us to be nice back. But when people are mean and hostile to us, our pride in our flesh so naturally wants to rebel and be snarky and be rude, ignore them, be hostile back. And Jesus saying, no, look to God who sends the rain on the just and the unjust. So by loving our neighbor and loving our enemy, it's implying love all people, no matter if they're good to us or bad. We are called to love all people. And this was always the idea that was in the Old Testament. In fact, neighbor gets used more than just people who are right in front of you. It gets applied to actually Gentiles. When Jonah is on the ship with the crew where he's trying to run from God, it says he spoke to the people in front of him, and it's actually the same word for neighbor. So neighbor in the Old Testament does get applied to Gentiles. Jonah 1.7 gives us that example. And so Jesus naturally applies and pulls out. This is how it was always meant to be. Love your neighbor and love your enemy. Do we have any questions on that? So let's expand this now to who is our neighbor. Let's go to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up 
and put, I'm sorry, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest who was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him into the inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarius and gave him to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. So let me give some context of the idea of a Samaritan. The Samaritans were repulsive to Jews. And what ended up happening is in the days of King Solomon, the nation of Israel split into a northern into a southern part, the northern nation of Israel and the southern Judah. Fast forward a few hundred years, the northern nation falls to the Assyrians, and then 200 years later, the southern kingdom falls to the Babylonians. Now the Assyrians oftentimes would take some of the people out of the land as captive, but they would want people to still be in the land, so they would leave some of the inhabitants there, but then what would end up happening is people from other parts of the Assyrian um, nation, they would come into that land and they would now commingle with the people. And what ends up happening is this group of Israelites who stay there start marrying having relationships, having kids with Gentiles. Now their capital city was Samaria. So that's where we get the name Samarians. And the cultures of the Jewish people and the Gentiles start mixing and we get a whole bunch of issues dealing with their theology. They start misunderstanding a lot of the Old Testament understanding of who God is. They start not practicing the laws that God had. And essentially, because of the influence of the Gentile people around them, they fall into idolatry. The same thing happened to King Solomon when he married foreign wives. 
their heart was led astray after foreign gods. And so to the Jews, Sumerians were, they would oftentimes half-breed. They were part Jewish, but they were prohibited from marrying in that way. And so you start seeing this hostility that starts coming up. And you see it even more during Nehemiah and Ezra. So when the Babylonian captivity happens, eventually when the Babylonians leave and the Persians take over, a group of exiles is finally allowed to return to Israel. And they come back and they start rebuilding the city walls and they start rebuilding the foundation of the temple and then the temple itself. And it actually says that the people of the land, these are the people who had stayed in the land and there's where the Sumerians are there. But at that point, they're a heretical group that have lost worship of the one and true God. They were already breaking the dietary laws, so they were considered unclean, and they were worshiping God falsely. And you see some of the hostility in John chapter 4 when Jesus talked to the woman at the well, and she says, you're a Jew. You're not normally talking to Sumerians. And so the hostility came because of their, their false worship of God. But again, the Jewish people, in their misunderstanding of who is their neighbor, started to become racist towards anyone, and they became prideful of their own religious outpourings. Like, we do this, so we're better than everyone else. And so the Samaritans were looked down upon, and there was hostility. And so for Jesus to include a Samaritan as the main character, the one who actually is highlighted in a good light, would be repulsive to the Jews during that time. And so let me make a few other points on Luke chapter 10. So first, we already see an issue early on where this lawyer comes up and he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life. You already see the pride in his heart. What can I do? How can I earn salvation? I can keep the law. In fact, when Jesus says, well, what was written down? How do you understand the law? And the sad thing is this person gets it right. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now that first part, you shall love the Lord, is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, where you are called to love the Lord, and the Lord God is one. So he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6, but also Leviticus 19. Love the Lord, love your neighbor. And Jesus says, yes, if you do that, you can be saved. But the person doesn't even realize that that's not possible to do. And this is where Jesus immediately deals with the heart of the issue. Jesus goes deeper. Instead of trying to point out some stuff, he says, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a parable. And he points out that this person, by implication, does not actually obey the command. He thought he could obey it perfectly. But when Jesus points out, well, you're supposed to love Sumerians too. This Jewish person would be like, oh, uh, 
Maybe I don't do it. And that was the point that Jesus was trying to make. He is trying to correct this person's understanding. No, you cannot save yourself. What can I do to inherit eternal life? It's already the wrong question to begin with. And then look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, again, the idea of pride, they want to save themselves, they want to do good works. And he pridefully asks, well, who's my neighbor? And that's where the story begins. Let me make a few points about the people. We begin with a priest, verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And then it also says, and likewise, a Levite. So, Levites and priests come through the same line. They both come from the tribe of the Levites. This is the same tribe that Moses and Aaron were part of. And not all Levites were actually priests. You only had a few people who were actually priests. And so in the Old Testament, you start seeing different responsibilities to different tribes within the Levites. So you have Korah's tribe. Now we oftentimes think of Korah's rebellion. Korah's rebellion, their main issue, along with what the tribe of Reuben brought up is, is not right for Aaron's group, Aaron's tribe. Why do they get to be the priest and stand before the Lord God? We want to do it. Now, Korah's tribe, they had a different set of responsibilities. So a few different responsibilities that the other tribes that were part of the Levites, they would oftentimes carry the tabernacle and the furniture. They also had guards. There were people who were assigned to guard the temple and stand outside for protection. They also had people who were singers. And so there were different tribes within a tribe, and they had different responsibilities. So when it says a priest, this was almost like the top of the top. These were people who were actually allowed to be inside the temple and to be allowed to do sacrifices. They were allowed to go into the holy of holies. One high priest a year, though. And so there should be no one who would be more qualified and more almost viewed as holy and special among all the people of the Israelites. It's like a priest? These are people who perform sacrifices. And so Jesus immediately says, and he, wa he walked on the other side of the road, ignored him. It doesn't give us the exact reason, but if this person touched someone in this case, that priest would become unclean. So maybe it was the priest arguing his head, well, I'm on my way to this place, and if I touch a potentially dead body, I could become unclean, and then I couldn't do my priestly duties, and I would be unfit for the temple until um, they had to clean, there was a washing, so I would be unclean for a while. Now, we don't give the exact reason, but that could very well have been the argument. Well, I don't want to touch a potentially dead body. I'm not even going to go over there and look at him. And so Jesus afterward says, Okay, not a priest, but still someone in the tribe of, or still in the Levite tribe. This, this is just a Levite. Maybe he 
who doesn't have to serve in the temple would actually do something. And same thing. Likewise, he went on the other side of the road and passed him by. Now the story, the natural thing that people would probably think is it would be then a Jewish layman, just anyone in the tribe of Israel, that would be what would be expected as the next person to pass by. But instead, Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, brings up a Samaritan, someone who the Jews, again, hate it with passion. Just touching this person would make them unclean because they eat stuff that's um, not allowed. They worship foreign gods. And the interesting thing is, it's the Samaritan who actually shows compassion on this person. And he tends up the wounds, he puts them on his own donkey, and he cares for this person. Takes him to the inn. All his needs are met during this time. And Jesus' point is right at the end. Jesus asks, who is the neighbor? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And this lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. He doesn't even have the guts to say the Samaritan. He just says, the one who happened to show mercy. It's a backwards way of not saying Samaritan. But you already see, again, the pride in this man's life. He does not understand what the actual teaching is. Jesus then says, you go and do likewise. Jesus is trying to show this man that, no, you do not love your neighbor. You say that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself? That isn't true. He says, go do likewise. And this person would be so repulsed, I'm not going to touch a Samaritan. I'm not going to show compassion. They're outsiders. Jesus is just showing the heart of this individual. But the greatest truth in the story is actually who truly is the Good Samaritan. And that Good Samaritan is actually Jesus Christ. Again, we were the ones who had been robbed. We were the ones who were stained with sin and unclean. And Jesus, in his kindness, came down to earth and he was the one who showed compassion. He was the one who tended to our sin. He was the one who made us clean by his own blood. Jesus is truly the good Samaritan. And so like Matthew chapter 5, where it says, be sons of your father, we should be like Jesus, who is the good Samaritan. And we likewise should show compassion on all people because of what Jesus has done to save us from our sin and our uncleanliness. So why should we love our neighbor? Because Jesus tells us to. Jesus shows us that all people that we meet are our neighbors. We should show compassion on these people, and we should love them. And we just look to Jesus, who is our example. It's because he has saved us from our sin and showed us love and compassion that we just want to serve him. We look to Jesus as an example. 
because we have been set free from our own sin and we want to have our lives as a demonstration of the love that God has shown us. We love because we were loved by God. That is our motivation on why we love our neighbors. Let's talk about some common issues that can come when we now try to practically love our neighbors. So there's the alternative motive and the ultimate. And even myself, I fall into the first category at times where sometimes I just treat my neighbor nicely only because I want an opportunity to share the gospel with them. In one sense, it's a good thing that we should want to share the gospel with our neighbor. One sense, that's the greatest way that we can love our neighbor is by telling them about their sin and Lord willing, they're turning away from their sin. But do not fall into the trap of only doing something for our neighbor just as an opportunity to then share the gospel with them because then our motives can be wrong. We're not doing it out of true love for our neighbor, and that can become an issue. Oh, but I'm only taking out the trash for my neighbor just so I can have a good conversation with them later. No, you should take out the trash because you love the Lord Jesus Christ, and it honors him. And this is different from the ultimate motive. Our ultimate motive is that our neighbors will be saved, and they will repent of their sin. But in the meantime, we use every opportunity we can have to love our neighbor and every opportunity we have to share the gospel with our neighbor. There will be times where it will not be, you will not be able to share the gospel with your neighbor. In fact, it might be repulsive to our neighbor every single time we went over there. Let me tell you about Jesus. We do desire our neighbors to be saved. And it is a good thing for us to constantly be sharing the gospel. But never forget that it is loving towards God and honoring to God that we love our neighbor just for the sake of loving our neighbors because it honors God. It brings glory to his name. But then by loving your neighbor and by serving them over and over, use that as a gateway to share the gospel. Now, I'm not talking about friendship evangelists where we're just making friends so we can share the gospel. I'm talking about loving your neighbor just because it's the right thing to do and use both as an opportunity. That's why oftentimes when people go on mission trips and go to other parts of the country, it is more effective for those people to at the same time serve the physical needs of that person and then also fill their spiritual needs. So by doing both at the same time, we can be better neighbors and we can be more effective in sharing the gospel. Do you have any questions on that? So Pastor Ed was just saying that 
both acts, both sharing the gospel and just serving our neighbors, are valuable. Now, we don't have time to handle every single way that we can love our neighbor, and we'll be hitting more practical examples throughout the week, but just some points that we can make. The best way to love your neighbor is by sharing the gospel, by telling them about Jesus, by telling them about their sins. Again, dangers to avoid. First is the worst one, just not sharing the gospel with your neighbor ever. You say, I'm just waiting for the perfect opportunity to share the gospel. Or almost a fear, man, I'm, I'm just scared of sharing the gospel with. So avoid the danger of never sharing the gospel. But avoid the danger of just treating, loving your neighbor as waiting for the next evangelistic opportunity. Serve your neighbor and at every chance you get also share the gospel with your neighbor. So on the back of your worksheet is a chart. And what I want to challenge you guys to do is actually to think about some of your neighbors. Write down their name. Have you had a religious conversation where you at least know their background, what beliefs, are they Roman Catholic, Mormon, just agnostic or atheist? Have you even talked to them about what they believe? Have you shared the gospel with them? And also mark down your current relationship with them. Each neighbor you're going to have a different relationship with. There are going to be some that you've never even met them, don't even know their name. You've been living across the street from them for years, and you still have yet to say hi. I challenge you in that. Look for opportunities to meet them. Look for opportunities to serve them. Now, there may be some people that you're just an acquaintance. You say hi when you see them in their driveway. If you're walking by, you're friendly with them. And that's perfectly fine. It's perfectly fine to just be an acquaintance. And it's perfectly fine to just be a friend. Each neighbor is going to be different in your relationship with them. But use that opportunity to think about what you know about them. Think of opportunities of what you know so that you may serve their needs. There might be situations where there's an older lady who lives close by and your way of, sh of loving them would just be taking out the trash once a week for them. It could be an opportunity just to talk to them and introduce Jesus, especially during this time of year. You can love your neighbor by inviting them over to Thanksgiving. Maybe they're alone, they just don't know anyone. Again, I'm just giving examples of how you can love your neighbors. None of these are you need to do this or you're in sin. But what I'm trying to point out in, in this series is that there are plenty of opportunities that we have with our neighbors that we sometimes just don't take. So pray to the Lord that he gives you opportunities to get to know your neighbors. It might be a good opportunity for you to make some extra food, make some cookies, 
and go knocking on a neighbor's door to introduce yourself. But another common way to um, introduce a neighbor is by seeing issues in your neighborhood. So for example, I live in an HOA and we just had new management take over and people are upset and they're angry at the new management. There will be times that you can see a big issue in your neighborhood and be able to address it and deal with issues because it's love towards your neighbor. It benefits everyone. It's a loving thing to do. There are opportunities that we can just take in small ways every day just to get to know our neighbors, to serve them, and Lord willing, we can share the gospel with them and they may become saved. Do we have any questions? Pastorello? So Pastor Rollo is saying, um, sharing your testimony is not sharing the gospel. There is a distinction. We must tell them about Jesus, his death and his resurrection, and about their sin. And he also made the point that we should share the gospel early on and not wait five years before we actually do something. Don't serve your neighbor for five years, eventually, now that I have a good relationship, then I can share the gospel. Don't make that error too. Pastor Ed? So Pastor Ed is asking, what about our enemies? Do we have enemies? How do we know? So there are people that are hostile to the faith. And those would be the people I would consider, in one sense, enemies of God who are hostile towards us in our message. There have been times where people would single out a Christian because what they believe in. Oftentimes, we can see the most hostility nowadays from the LGBT movement, where they will be hostile towards Christians. And so in one sense, we can view that as an enemy. And those are the people that we should be loving and showing compassion towards. Julian?
I would use the enemy of like where, um, how like in Matthew 5, he's talking about those who are persecuting you. So not someone who's just rejecting the gospel. They just don't see their need for it and just reject you. I wouldn't say that person is an enemy. I would say in more lines of what Jesus is saying is the enemy is the one who is persecuting the Christian for their faith. And th- those are the examples that we see throughout Scripture. Does that answer your question, Julian? Yeah, so I'm using, so you're actually using like an enemy of God, whereas I'm saying they are being an enemy towards me. Yes, all people have hostility towards God, and it says that we were once enemies of God in Ephesians 2. I'm using it differently than how you're using it. Pastor Ed? Mm-hmm. Okay, any other questions? Yes? Yeah, so some of the practical ways we can actually help the homeless is providing footwear. Their mode of transportation is shoes, and so they oftentimes go through shoes a lot quicker than we would because they need to have it. They're walking on rocks a lot more often, sidewalks. So providing footwear for them, providing food for them. Um, oftentimes homeless people are ignored, and they don't even have people look them in the eyes. And so sometimes just having a conversation with them and just asking them, what is your story, can be a good way of loving them. And again, we can always say that the greatest act of love that we can show any neighbor is by sharing the gospel. So serve their physical needs, but also serve their spiritual needs. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for what Jesus says and just clarifying who our enemy is, who our neighbor is, how we are to love them. God, it is often hard for us to talk to our neighbors and get to know them. God, I pray that the people here will be convicted to love people because you have shown us love. God, may you convict our hearts and God, may you give us boldness to both serve and to share the gospel. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.